Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing. I'm here today with Mark Kenny, who's the founder and I'm not sure if this president or what's the title there. <laughs> yeah, my, well, my wife and I together, so Both she might you. have different opinion. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Both of you are, runs the thing multifamily. Yeah. But uh, before that, uh, before we go into uh, you know the hot topics that we're going to discuss with Mark, uh, you know, make sure that you guys look at last week's episode where we had KK Singh being interviewed. Uh, KK has moved from uh, a business owner; he used to own gas stations, laundromat, and now has become a multifamily investor, which is a very very interesting concept because I think uh, any business owner, anybody who want to know how that business is run and why he's using multifamily. Why did he go into multifamily? And, and he didn't even pay tax last year just because of the multifamily investment. So you guys want to check out the last episode. Uh, but let's come back to this episode. Hey, Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Great to see you again. Awesome. Awesome. Happy to, happy to have you on the show. So Mark, is uh, he, he's a GP. He's almost like 5,200 units uh, where out of that uh, 2,000 units where he's basically the primary active asset manager and he's also GP on another 3,200 uh, on top of the 2,000 units. Uh, and he goes across multiple markets, which is very interesting for me. I want to go a bit deep dive into that. He's in Texas, he's in Alabama, he's in Tennessee, he's in Florida. And uh, I believe that's what I covered, right, uh, Mark? Georgia as well. Georgia. Yes. Okay, got it, got it. Atlanta, right? So did I miss out something that you want to, you know, about, about yourself? Do you want to tell our audience about yourself? No, I mean, yeah, real quick. I mean, no, um, so I grew up in Michigan. I'm in Dallas now, so not too far away from you, uh, James. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, I was a CPA for a while. I did IT consulting, which you and I traded some stories about that before, about the IT side. And I started buying small multifamily when I was 22. I was a senior in college, but two to four units. And then my brother and I, I didn't know what syndication was. Syndication is a fancy word for raising money for other people for the most part and, and pooling it together to buy properties. I didn't know what that was. So I started buying two to four units. Uh, and then my IT business was doing pretty well. But I was really had no time. I was, you know, I say 80, 85 hours a week and start really doing the math. I was probably 90 to 100 hours a week on a lot of weeks. And, uh, you know, frankly, didn't have any time for my wife, caused some issues. And uh, so she basically said, you need to do something different than what you're doing. And I said, well, yeah, I, I will. But, you know, um, you have to do it with me. And we both loved real estate. So we started buying uh, larger properties through syndication. I invested passively first in the syndication with a friend of mine. Said it makes a lot of sense, and you know, um, so I don't look at doing it myself. And that's what we started doing back in 2013. Got it, got it. It's very interesting about your story when when you're working on a W two job, especially in the IT tech industry. I mean, it's a lot of work. We put in long hours, right? Uh, it's yeah. a constantly changing sector, right? The industry is consistently changing. We're always uh, driven by schedule and. I was just talking to uh, Shanti, uh, who's my wife, you know, on how 
our life has changed when we used to be in w2 you know every day like yeah. friday is when <clears throat> our weekend really open up our time open up so monday to friday we are like so busy working like our right time is focused and where i used to work we used to work remote remote as well so you know after 5 6 o'clock we used to work like you know we have lunch uh, we have dinner and then we start continue working with the offsite team so so life never ends and now with real estate is so much of difference you know you own your own time and you have right. i don't what to do and and we can you know my traveling time in austin is like 11 to 2 that's it because it's a bit traffic and all that yeah right? it's interesting right? i mean i actually started my own it business 2008 so i didn't even have a w2 job since 2008 okay but it, i got in a situation where you know any project that came up and any unrealistic time frame that was out there i would do it i would make i would make the dates. So that's what allowed me to get more and more projects. I had a number of Fortune 100 companies as customers, but so even though I had my own business back then, I still didn't have the luxury of time. You know, I was I was always on the on, you know, always going somewhere, always doing projects and you know, I'd be up, I'd sleep 3 hours a night. Like consistently. That's all I would sleep. So, did you make I mean, now you don't have to go by numbers, but did you make like almost similar amount of money compared to what you made in real estate i mean it's a time versus a money investment right it's a great question because when i first started looking at syndication i said i'm not going to be able to replace my it income and i i truly it was a mindset it really was i really did not think i'd replace my it income it was pretty pretty high at the time and after three projects that i did in multifamily i ended up stop doing i stopped doing it i had not replaced my it income at that point in time but it was enough to to live and, and live, you know, decent. Um, and then we've done, you know, we've done 37 projects or whatever now. Um, but uh, I didn't think I was going to replace it. But yeah, we've, we've far surpassed it. I mean, a lot, frankly. And That's the time cool. we have, and I don't have to ask anyone to go anywhere, or, uh, you know, things like that. You can turn it on and off if you want to. Where IT, if you're not working, you're not making any money. <laughs> you don't have so, that passive income. So you have a, a very interesting life cycle because you were working in IT as a W2 job. And then you went to do your own business, but still as an IT, right? Um, right. And now you are completely full-time real estate investor. So in terms of time-wise, uh, I mean, from what I were discussing, I mean, real estate investment gives you the best return of time, right? I mean, you get oh, really good pay at the same time, your time is like... Yeah really low there's no comparison you know you mentioned about talking to your wife about how your life is different i mean my life is you know 180 degrees different for the better um and then what it was before you know i was in the verge of you know <laughs> i'm not sure you know tammy wasn't my wife wasn't really happy because of my work schedule and now we got to work full-time together just like you get to work with your wife which is which is yeah. great absolutely um in the time you know if i want to go somewhere and you can get to the point with with multifamily or any real estate investment, you get enough of it. If you choose to go sit on the beach, which I don't want to do, frankly, I don't. But if you choose to go do that, you get in a position to do that for sure. Uh, with IT, I, I wouldn't be able to. I had to keep working projects in order to make the money. Yeah. But can we go back to your mindset when you are working, uh, not not as a business owner, when you are working in IT? Because I I sometimes analyze my own mindset when I was working. Because when I was working, I did look at Robert Kiyosaki's book and I could not read like a few pages because it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, we are so busy working. And what is this guy talking about business, right? And after a few pages, I put it down and I forgot about it, right? So until recently, I started reading it. And I was just surprised that that book changed a lot of people, real estate, real estate investors' uh, life. 
No, I think when you are working, you're really, really working. You really don't care about business side of it. And you are, I mean, it's, I think it's up to your circle, right? Who are you mixing with? Who's your network? That's a great point. I know when, you know, I worked originally at KPMG Consulting. I worked for SAP, um, you know, did some Salesforce consulting, things like that. And you look at other people that are older than you at the time I started out, it was, you know, early 20s uh, when I started now. And I look at other people that are partners, for example, and you have this image, you're like, that's my lifestyle. You know, I'm going to I'm going to be traveling all the time. I'm going to be working seven days a week, which is what I did. And, you know, and then, you know, some point in time, not everyone gets to the point where it's, you know, where I was. But my point was, you know, hey, and my wife was pretty much ready to leave me if I didn't do anything. And uh, that was a big eye opener for me. But you're right. You get trapped in that that uh, yeah that circle of influence, right? And all everyone's doing the same thing. And at that time, I aspired to be a partner, and I would have made partner. I mean, made a manager in two years and things like that. But um, I would have been miserable, frankly. <laughs> I would have been. So compared to the job security, I mean, I don't know whether there's job security in any job or not because yeah. uh, there is no job security, right? I mean, I, right. I when I was a manager, I used to hire and fire people very quickly just because non-performance right so mm-hmm. there is no job security right i mean <laughs> i used right. to work on a semiconductor industry for like almost 20 years and we thought we were going to retire there and yeah. but we realized uh you know during different economic cycle the company doesn't really you know honor your loyalty right i mean right. there's no such thing right i mean they have to make a business decision they let you go if they need to let you go so there's no such thing as a company is going to be keeping you forever <laughs> right right it's true so yeah, coming back to um, real estate venture, right? So uh, this was like uh, 2008 is when you, st- I mean, so 2008 is when you got into IT. And uh, when did you start your real estate uh, venture? Syndication, uh, 2013 is when I first started investing passively and invested okay. in a few deals. And about that time, I started looking at syndication, but it took me almost a year to get my first deal. Okay. And it was partly, I was looking at other things too, self-storage and building custom development, you know, homes and things like that, franchises, I looked at everything. I was looking for something to get me out of what, <laughs> what the bad situation I was in. Um, but it, so it took us about two, a year to get our first deal. So did you stop work and start into real estate? Was it a, was it a, a step function or was it like a slow? It was gradual. gradual. For me, it took me three deals. So I'm thinking, uh, let me see, uh, 2014 is when I, I think I got my first deal. I don't remember exactly, but by 16, uh, okay. I had stopped doing IT. Got it, got it, got it. Was that a painful transition from a W two from a, a business owner to a real estate investor? Um, no, it really wasn't for me, anyways. You know, I've always had a big fear of money and, you know, I wish I didn't, but I always did because growing up and things like that. But we had enough money set aside to where, you know, I looked at it. If I had to go back and do IT, I had so many connections at the time I could, you know, I could get a job pretty much, you know, right away. I didn't want to, but I was like, okay, well, I have a transition I'm making here. But if I fail, that was my mind. If I failed at doing this, and after taking a year to find my first deal, I was pretty skeptical. Uh, and then we started getting the traction. So I was like, hey, if I need to go back, I can do that. I don't want to do it. But if I do, I can support the family. The transition wasn't that hard for me. Um, we were buying at that time only in Dallas. 
So I really wasn't having to travel outside of Dallas. So it was pretty, it's pretty easy transition. Got it. Got it. So as I was talking about that you had like three different life cycle, right? You had a W2 employee, you are a business owner, and then you become a real estate investor. So, and you are a CPA. So I'm going to ask you a similar to CPA question. How was your tax uh, advantages compared in these three life cycles? Okay. So, you know, even though I'm a CPA, I haven't practiced for, you know, 20. <laughs> but at a high level, right? I mean, was no, there yeah. a tax benefit between? Oh, yeah. W2 Without a doubt. Yeah. So when I had IT business, you know, I was actually paying taxes quarterly. I was getting hit hard. I mean, it was making decent money. Now, the last two years, we haven't paid any federal income tax, like zero. Okay. And in fact, it's negative. So people are like, oh, you didn't make any money. No, we make money. But from the tax benefit we receive through depreciation and you know cost segregation and bonus appreciation, we pay zero federal income tax. So, I mean, just think about people listening to this. If you didn't have to pay taxes, how much more money you'd have in your pocket Absolutely. and what you could do with that. Yeah. Yeah. I have a chart that shows how a $2 double for next 20 years and, uh, you know, at a 25% rate that $2 become like 11 or so 72,000 after 20 years, because you <laughs> tax 20, 25% every time you uh, double. Right. But if you don't have tax, uh, that $2 becomes almost like $11 million. Oh know? boy. Oh my goodness. So, the tax does impact your compounding savings, right? And if you don't really look at it, you know, you, you may not know. I mean, when I was working, I never really look at tax because as I say, we are busy working. We just look at net pay coming to the thing. I mean, tax is like, it's a noise for me. And But when I look at that kind of chart, you know, it does make a lot of difference in terms of, hey, you know, it does impact your overall savings. You know, if you compound it uh, for, you know, 10, 20 right. See a big difference, millions of dollars of difference. Yeah, oh yeah, and like you mentioned, when you have a W two job, it just comes out. You, you notice it, you don't like it, but when you have your own business, my own IT business, you have to write a check every quarter. You really notice it, and then you're like, I, I made that much money this quarter, and where did it all go? And now I have to write a check for you know X number of dollars, and you know you're just scratching your head, and you're frustrated and stressed out. And but yeah, with real estate, it's literally zero. So no, did you have uh, employees under you when you have a business? All ten in all ten ninety nine. Never ten ninety nine. Okay, so if you have employee, then you have to pay tax for them too, I guess. Right. right? So that's a yeah. double taxation when you have. A that's business. exactly right. Okay, so W two. I mean, I don't know. I have a chart that shows W two M people are the are paying uh, almost seventy uh, percent of the tax in this country. So this country is supported by W two employ uh, people who are people who are in W two. They are the ones who right. the taxes. They are the ones building the roads, the bridges, and all the infrastructure. Yeah. Right. The thirty percent is from the other people who are, you know, uh, people who are earning less than thirty thousand, or people who are earning more than five hundred thousand and above are paying right. much less number yeah. of taxes. I guess. Right. I mean, no people who are earning more than two hundred thousand do pay a lot of taxes, but in general, if you look at it, the big bulk of it is paid by our W two employees. Right. Right. The number. Yeah. Makes sense. It's because you can't run away, right? <laughs> right, you can't. There's no way, there's no There's no savings, no tax shelters. Absolutely, absolutely. Real estate investors all have all kind of uh, incentive in the tax code uh, to get not paying taxes. So coming back to your real estate venture in multifamily, and you skipped over buying single family and you went direct to multifamily. Is that right? We did. I mean, multifamily, two to four units when I was you know, 22. Okay, so you did something. Okay. Yeah, so it was, it was smaller for sure. It made more sense to me, frankly. I don't remember. I actually didn't look at any homes. And I don't know why. I go back and think about that. Why I didn't start looking at any single family homes. To me, it, we looked at two to four units at the time. 
Well, I mean, if you look at cash flow, two to four units definitely makes a lot more sense in terms of cash flow, right? It does. Maybe, um, maybe that's what it is. But and how many two to four units did you own before you come to multifamily? We had like seventeen units total. So, okay, seventeen doors uh, in two to yeah. four units, I guess, smaller multifamilies. Yeah. And do you think that helped you when you scale up? It did. It did because, I mean, even the. You know, I know you manage, right? You and your, mm-hmm. your wife manage. And, and when we did the smaller properties, we self-managed and we took care of things and evicted people. So it definitely helped <laughs> from that perspective. I didn't like the process. So I, 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 it's not something I want to do now. But it also, even though there's dra- it's drastically different how you evaluate mm-hmm. four units and below and, and, and five units and below is drastically different. The steps are people can argue them all day long. The steps are almost identical, right? You identify your criteria, you go drive by a property, contract, blah, blah, blah. Everything's the same. So it helped for sure. Plus just kind of, you know, um, getting comfortable with buying your first deal is the hardest. So once you start, you know, I bought like whatever it was, you know, five deals, six deals, I don't remember the number was exactly. And it gets you more comfortable. So when you go buy a larger property, it's bigger numbers. So it is concerning. But I had already done, you know, like six transactions before that time, even though they're small. Got so it. it helped. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just in a way it helps uh, because, I mean, you know, the lease, how to read the lease and you probably know how right. the real estate right. transaction happens, right? Which is your first time signing for your first deal. Usually you're most likely going to be pretty freaked out, right? <laughs> um, when you, you've done six smaller deals. It's still, and then when you start doing a bigger deal, then it's the money, right? The only, the only thing that concerned me you know, I should say only really was the, you know, bringing capital to the deals. I had no concerns about how to underwrite the deals because I, I knew how to do that or how to find deals or talk to brokers or loan. It was always about, you know, how, the capital. That was my biggest concern. Okay. Okay. But do you think that's still an issue in this market cycle? The capital? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always concerned about capital. You know, we have like eight deals under contract right now. Like, mm. you know, so... We've never not closed a deal, but, um, you know, it does. That's the one thing that still stresses me out sometimes, frankly. Yeah, because you need to figure out whether you have enough, uh, big enough investor base to right all those eight deals, right? That's right. Okay, got it. So coming back to this, the multiple markets that you have, do you want to explain on how did you get into these so many markets? I mean, I think you some of it is you partnered with uh, some of your students. Well, originally, I was just buying pretty much with one other person in Dallas. Dallas, at least in my opinion, was definitely getting more expensive and it's even more expensive now. But, and I have a twin brother that moved to Atlanta. So I used to visit him and Atlanta has a lot of similarities to Dallas. Um, It's not where Dallas is yet and it may never be, but definitely has a lot of similarities. So I started traveling there. I looked at properties for about a year and a half before we got our first deal. And um, I just really liked the market. Was that that kind of was through? My, if my brother wasn't there, I don't know if I would be in Atlanta. Frankly, I don't know if I would have thought about going there. When I'm going there, I see a lot of activity, new building, new development, cranes, things like that. So it was attractive market. And then so that's Texas and you know kind of the Atlanta area. And then we started looking in the southeast. Just as a general statement, some of the brokers cross different states sometimes too. They might. If they have a license, they can actually sell in multiple states. So they might say, hey, I'm now we're in you know, Tennessee. We have a project here. We have a project up in Arkansas now, which we don't own anything there yet. 
So these brokers started giving us deals and I started checking out different markets. And the, the really the way I got into these other markets as far as initially was I would have brokers in Dallas typically uh, reach out to other brokers in other markets and make an introduction for me. And that kind of gives you kind of gives you instant credibility. And they're going to typically give you the best of the best of brokers to work with in another market. And that's how we got involved in other markets. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, but how did you choose this market? I mean, except for the Atlanta where you said your brother was there, you, yeah. you initially went there because of Atlanta, but now you are like in five different markets. Yeah. Tennessee, Alabama, Florida. How did you choose these markets? Why and why yeah. these markets? A, a friend of mine who I've done a lot of deals with, well, he had bought a, a smaller deal in Memphis and I never would have considered Memphis. And some people don't like Memphis. We own a lot there. We've done really well there. But Memphis also has, you know, even though the you want the job growth, population growth, things like that. It's it's okay, but not like Dallas, of course. But the rent growth has been going up. They're building. They're they're putting you know several billion dollars in investments of downtown. But that particular city also has something called a pilot program, which we've done multiple times, where you can go in, you buy a multifamily property, you you have to put a certain amount of capital into it. It's a, it's a lot. And then you'll get your property taxes cut in half, and then they're frozen for 20 years. So, I mean, as you know, property taxes is typically <laughs> one of the largest, right? Absolutely. So if you freeze them for 20 years, cash flow is going to typically be pretty, pretty nice on it. So, so do you, yeah, that's, that's yeah. That, so you're basically taking advantage of uh, that particular program. What about uh, the other states that you're you, yeah, Florida, I always looked, I liked, liked Florida just because of probably the weather initially. And when we were in Atlanta, we started looking in Florida as well. Um, you know, they're in Florida has, I mean, some areas like Miami that, as you probably know, are, you know, extremely expensive, just not going to buy there. But I also have a cousin, multiple cousins actually that live in, in Florida. And so I heard different things from talking to them. And then some of the brokers we were talking to, like in Georgia and stuff like that, I had some properties in Florida and a property came up and first time we were looking at properties there, really liked the properties in Jacksonville. We have, we have a few properties there now. And it was one of those markets, again, similar to Atlanta, where you know job growth, population growth, rent growth. And it doesn't have to be off the charts, frankly. Some of the markets where it's so off the charts, it's just too expensive to buy in the yields. You can't get the returns. And then with um, Alabama, it was a guy that had a deal and was looking to partner. I partnered with him on a few deals. He had deals there in, in Alabama. And then we have another one right now in our a guy in our coaching group that has a deal in Alabama as well. He's closer over by there as far as that's where he'd been looking. So usually it's through some sort of relationship. Okay. You know, somebody either already lives there or someone is looking there. And then it kind of gives me an opportunity to check the markets out. Got it. Got it. So basically, if you have a boots on the ground as part of your, your program, uh, that's an advantage, definitely. Right? It is for sure. There. But uh, don't you find, you know, establishing broker relationship in that kind of market is harder? I mean, they do not know you, right? Or it is. <laughs> There's no question. I mean... You know, I think that's why it took us so long to get into Atlanta. We had a really hard time breaking in there. And then once we got in there, you know, there was one brokerage firm in Atlanta that we closed 11 deals in like 18 months with. So we, wow. we, de we definitely have their attention. Um, but it's that first deal. And with the Florida, I mean, I was, we we're just banging my head against the wall because we couldn't get any traction with brokers there. 
Um, I would say, you know, just keep sticking with it. But you're, there's no question, you know, if you're an outsider, don't live there, and you've never bought a deal there, you're at a disadvantage. You can use things like, hey, your track record, and you can have brokers. that I know, so when we got a deal in uh, Florida, our first deal, it was with a brokerage firm that I had bought a deal in Dallas with, and the broker in Dallas had called me about it. So he, you know, if you want to say, put a good word in for us. So a lot of these brokers talk, as you know, it's a very small mm-hmm. world. Yeah. And I, I don't think we would have gotten that deal in Florida if I had not bought a deal with that broker, you know, brokerage firm, if you want to say in Dallas, I think we would have probably not been selected for that deal. Got it. So let's go a bit more detail into the step by step. So let's say today somebody, you know, in, in your circle or one of your students comes, hey, you know, I found a deal in Florida, right? Somewhere in Florida, right? So what are the things that you would do uh, to underwrite the deal? You know, the underwriting different aspects of it, forget the reports and stuff for a second. But, you know, even, you know, financing terms can be drastically different across the country. You know, some of the pre review cities and stuff like okay. that start at 65%. So you want to first understand. Don't assume you get 80% leverage and three or five years IO in every single location because it's different. So understanding first from that, insurance can be drastically different. You know, if you're on a coastal area, it can be a lot higher than other areas. So understanding kind of the fundamentals there. Uh, taxes, you know, do they get reassessed? And, and that can be through, we have a tax consultant we use, but also you can, you can typically just call the county and the county will tell you kind of how the taxes will be reassessed and when you know, in Memphis, it's every four years. So that's important to know. They only they only reassess every four years. And then we'll get like a, you know, a report, whether it's Yardi or Coastar, you know, those are paid reports. Um, we'll also use things like uh, some free, there's some, you know, we have a number of links on our analyzer that take you to things like for crime and uh, the school districts, things like that. Uh, those are all links we have on that. But overall, nothing beats having someone on the ground. You know, so if you can talk to other people there and talking to lenders, you know, lenders have the biggest investment in a deal than anybody is a general statement where right? they have more money involved. So try to understand from lenders too, kind of how some of the properties are performing there is important. Uh, in report, like I said, is only as good as a report. Um, it's, it is good data. A lot of it's based on, you know, actual transactions that have happened. But um, trying to get someone like a broker or a property management company. So if we have a property management company, uh, you know, David Shore is multi-south in, in Memphis and he's in seven other, he's actually in seven other states. Once we built that relationship, then we start asking him questions. He'll, he'll tell us, don't even look at that deal. It's a, it's a, you know, not a, not a good deal. This deal, maybe you look at, you know, 95% of the deals tell us not to look at there. So having some boots on the ground can't be replaced. It might take you a while to do that. It's typically going to be like a manager company. Um, or maybe a, you know a broker, but you know brokers in to sell. You know they're in. You know they want to get paid less to sell property. So kind of all the different aspects: reports, uh, talking to people, visiting the area, trying to understand what happened before in the past. Those areas are all good good ways to kind of get more intel on the property. So you basically look at location, crimes, uh, making sure you know, you know how are you underwriting your tax because tax, yeah, you're right. It tax is huge, right? Every states are different, right? So yeah, every state, county, city, even sometimes. So we tell people call. We have like I say a tax consultant, but we have found really if you call the county and tell them the property what you're doing, they'll tell you how they're reassessed and they'll yeah. give you a good number. 
I mean, we've only had like a couple of occasions where it hasn't really given us the information we want. Generally speaking, we always get the information we need from the county. Got it. Got it. So who who have told you the most knows? Uh, I mean, like who said don't touch that deal the most of the time? Is it property management company or is it a tax consultant or insurance company or property or, management company? They, yeah, they without, say, don't touch us, it. <laughs> no, without a doubt, property management company. It may be that I want to manage them, right? Um, yeah. Well, how do you know they are just don't like that property? Maybe that's just because. Yeah, you know, it, it's too, you know, um, I know you self-manage, but yeah. what we have found is almost every sub-market we're in with a manager company, even if they don't manage a property today, they're like, we managed that property five years ago. And, you know, like we've, in that, you know, and you, you might have some intel. We had a property here where a number of properties in Dallas I've looked at and our manager company manages it. So I call the guy and say, Hey, what's up with that? And he'll say, you know, it has like $200,000 of plumbing issues or whatever it might be. So, uh, but usually someone that's large in a, in a sub market, they know the property or they at least know it, you know, the area well enough to give you some really good Intel. And I, I don't know. It seems to you know, never seems to amaze me where people are like, well, manager company says we can push rents like $75. I think we can do it like by 125. It's like, there's no, there's no basis for that. Like, why do you think you can do that? You need to rely, you can push your manager company and ask them questions and things like that. You know, if I go try to do a comp for a property myself, I don't fit the demographics. I'm probably not going to get a good comp. Have a manager company do it for you. They'll actually send people out there that fit the demographics. They'll actually get you comps and pictures and things like that. Go into some of the re- these reports. I get called all the time from these, uh, you know, I won't name them, but these provididers of data call me all the time. I don't, I don't talk to them. It's yeah, you know, they I don't have to do it. <laughs> and be, yeah, you do right. And and half time the information you get, you don't even know if it's right. So it's coming through there. So yeah. <laughs> so so how do you know the management company that you're calling is not the current management company? Because you don't know. Uh, it, yeah. Expired because uh, it's happened before. You know, you can ask the broker who manages it today. Uh, they'll tell you. Um, because it's strange that property could be for sale and the property management company doesn't even know it. Mm, yeah. And if you call them and tell them, hey, I'm looking at this property for sale, then they're going to be, they're gonna be, be pretty upset. Yeah. 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 yeah I've, I've looked at out of state as well at one point and I realized management company gives me the best data, the best, best quick data. They can tell me a lot of things about a state compared to anybody else, right? Because you know, they know the pain of managing it. They right? do. So um, yeah, I would say they are the, one of the best resources to call if you're looking at out-of-state uh, investment, right? Um, so after that, what do you do? I mean, you already looked at taxes, you already looked at property, so it's all good. So what do you do next? So then we'll, we'll underwrite it usually using, a, you know, we have a quick analyzer, we have a much more detailed analyzer. And the detailed analyzer, we're going to go through every expense category, like line by line, compare them to the, you know, T12. We'll try to get, we try to get two independent property management budgets. So okay. we get that. And then we, our analyzer also has industry standards based on property class and size. We'll tell you what the standards are for every single category, um, which is very helpful to see if something's out of whack. You know, I just had an example, somebody not in our group, but someone sent me something. It was two properties. It was over 300 doors together. And they had payroll at $750 a door. I'm like, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Oh, we're going to share the property manager on site across the two properties. I'm like, not for 300 plus units, you're not going to. Yeah. Um, not very easily. So um, I said, okay, so 
did the management company say they're okay with that? No. And even if they did, what happened with the, if you have to get rid of them? And now you're going to bring in another management company. They're going to be at $1,200 a door. Right. So don't, it just happened another one today, actually, on something where they're getting you know, charged 2.5% on 80 doors. I said, that's pretty low, 2.5%. Um, not saying it's impossible, but you need to probably bump that up. Because just because one management company said they'll do it for that, mm-hmm. if they're not your management company anymore, then you're going to be paying more, typically. Yeah, yeah. you can't you can underwrite just because of one person said it, right? I mean, that's right. two and a half is really low compared to any industry. Yeah, 80 standard. doors, it yeah. is. Whenever I see sponsors or syndicators showing me a deal, I mean, not many people show me their deals, but I do get to see some people's deal, right? I mean, when they say they want to share management, that is an indication that, you know, that deal doesn't have doesn't work. Much, much upside. Doesn't <laughs> because work. they have to do really, really creative, weird stuff. They have to share this, we have to share that, we have to do miscellaneous income, we have to do covered parking, we have to do wash and dry rental. That's all like really, really small amount right. of upside right and right basically that deals are not a good deal right i mean that's just a great you're exactly right i mean you know it right you, you manage your properties <laughs> yeah, and yeah when people are like i'm going to share i was like you you're not going to i mean if you think it was that easy don't you think all the managed companies would do it yeah right i mean you're gonna you're gonna awesome. you're gonna compromise a lot of things when you share management you and, and as i said when when you're going to that extent to really uh, justify your upside in the deal that means that deal is really not a good deal right I mean, well james i have people would be like we're going to put in um, like uh, Wi-Fi and charge this. And, and they're trying to put that in their underwriting. I'm like, yeah, what's I the mean, point? <laughs> first of all, you might not be able to because of the cable contract, right? You might be allowed to. And second of all, let's just assume you're able to do that. Is that needed in your analysis to make the deal work? I sure hope it doesn't, you know, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, need yeah, it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Crazy. For those who are learning this business, the biggest bulk, the deals that work, is when you can bump up rent and you can reduce expenses. If you can do this right. thing, this is the big thing. So if you see any deals that you can, majority of your upside comes from here, you know, you don't look at, you know, wash it, adding more one or two washer dryer, adding cover right. parking, uh, adding Wi-Fi, as what you said, or, you know, sharing management. That's all right. Really, the deals doesn't work at all. I mean, the sponsor is just trying to squeeze all kind of juice and tell you that it's going to work. But in reality, it's really, really hard to make all that work. I mean, that, all that's right. a bonus. If it works, it's good. If it doesn't yeah, work, that's exactly right. Work, right? So. And your total expenses, you could go up because of property taxes, but you know some of your points around you reduce the expenses. I mean, there are huge savings on water. Lots of times for, mm-hmm. for properties, right? You can go in there, um, repair and maintenance. We see lots of times you you do as well. I'm sure where people are putting capital items in repair and maintenance, and they're like, you know, fourteen hundred dollars a door per year. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean that's really high, right? Yeah. Um, so they're just putting stuff up there. If you go in and get a loan able to put capital in there, maybe do roofing, some ACs and things like that, you can most likely bring your repair and maintenance down more to industry standard. Um, so for looking for those things, but if you don't know what those standards are, it, you know, you don't have any gauge. Sure, sure, sure. So we don't have to talk about your detailed anal- analysis uh, that you do, but on the sniff test that you have a quick analysis, right? So what are the thing, few things that you would look at to you know, kick out a, a, a project? Return wise, um, I'll look at, you know, we still shoot for like a 10% cash and cash return, which is getting yeah. harder. In a lot so of 10% with the IO on year one, I guess, right? Yeah. With overall of the product, it's a five year project. Oh, five year project. Yeah, like a 10% cash and cash, a 15% plus IRR, and 100%. 100% is getting harder on five years, frankly, for a lot of properties, closer to six. Um, in some markets, it's more than that, but usually we try to stay in six and below to double the money. Um, and then I look at other things like, you know, what cap rate are they using, you know, they're on the exit, 
how they get the current cap rate. All oh, the broker. I mean, I had someone, no joke, in, in Florida call me and said, and it wasn't Miami, by the way. And they said, oh, the broker told me the cap rate is three and a half. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> you know what I mean? What? You know, so those type of things, right? So you can make any deal work, right? I know. I know. Not, so not I, a piece of paper. Just change the exit cap rate. and you Exactly right. I have an example I do in our, in our <laughs> workshop where I'm like, you know, this, and then you do the cap rate down to two. And what does it do? And, um, and then, you know, other things are going to be more around, you know, total income growth over the first couple of years. What does it look like? Um, you know, I'll see sometimes people think we're going to grow income 30%. I'm not saying it's impossible to do that, but when I see a property is you know 92% occupied, you're gonna go up 30% in your total income in a year. It's pretty high. Yeah, I'm not you know so you need to have justification for that. Um, so basically, we look at a lot of different gauges: break even occupancy, break even rents, things like that, and then the financing. You know, people mm -hmm. don't understand financing well enough lots yeah. of times as far as what how they're gonna do that. It's uh, yeah, it's it it can make or break a deal, right? So, right. So let's look at like the rent growth and the exit cap rate, right? So how do you differentiate this rent growth and exit cap rate on these like five different markets that you have? I mean, five. yeah. Well, the market cap rate. So we always start with the submarket cap rate. Doesn't matter which property it is, and we we have different ways to get that through reports and, and things like that. Um, and then we put an escalator on it, an annual escalator. And it'll be different between A, B, C assets, and we have some ranges there. Uh, the some markets actually, you know, Dallas was has gotten compressed so much on Class C. You know, it was like eight and a half percent in thirteen. Now it's like five, five gap <laughs> for a lot of park properties, right? And you don't know is ever going to go back. So we'll usually use um, you know minimum point one up to and then up to point two per year so it could be a you know, full 100 basis points uh, on a five-year exit and a lot of it's dependent on the property location i mean some of them some of the markets that the cap rates have been compressed there uh, but they haven't compressed as much as like dallas i mean they might have been let's just make an example say dallas eight and a half now it's five and the market there might have been seven and a half and now it's six. So it went down, you know, one and a half percent total. But we'll actually, we'll look at the property, the type of property, the, the you know, the age of it, asset class, and then the demographics. And we'll add an escalator on an annual basis for it. Um, okay. So each year it goes, escalates up. But how do you decide that? Like, so for example, I think in Texas, a lot of people use this 3% rent growth, right? Even though some, yeah. some cities are different. Like, yeah. Well, no, it's rent growth. Yeah. So cap. So rent growth, we usually use 2% just okay. across the board. Across the board, across it, all, uh, all markets. All, okay. All your deals. Um, okay. After year two, your first two years, as you know, right, you might have come in and you're increasing rents. We phase revenue in and things like that. After year, year two, the general statement is going to be a 2% rent increase. What about expenses? Two. Two. Okay, two so two percent income growth, two percent on year two onwards, I guess. Right. Yeah, which makes it makes a lot of sense. Right? I mean, you're not really counting for the first year for value add, and you know, it's just right. a you might be higher. I mean, some people were like in Dallas, you know, seven and a half percent rent increase growth, you know, growth for a while, and and people are like, I'm like, but that's like today, one point in time, you know, is you think it is, you know, it's proved where it's you know, Dallas rent increases have gone down considerably. Still a great market. I like the market. I don't really buy here right now, but um, you can't count on today. Or someone will say, "Hey, the economic vacancy, you know, is six percent." I'm like, "Yeah, but 
I mean, good for them, but yeah. you can't count on that. You can't count on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even I looked at, uh, I mean, yesterday there was a national multifamily trend report, which shows Dallas is below national average in terms yeah. of land growth. In fact, uh, San Antonio and Austin, Austin has been always higher than national land growth, but even yeah. San Antonio is higher than national land growth, which I've never seen that San Antonio being higher than Dallas. I mean, it's just cities change. Uh, yeah. You just, you have to be really conservative in your underwriting. as well. I think people are like enough is enough, right? When rent, rents go up, you know, seven plus percent for a few years in a row. Yeah. Um, People are like, you know, and it doesn't mean it's like, it doesn't mean it's a bad, bad market. I mean, there's mm-hmm. 150,000 people a year here that moved to work, you know, net. Yeah. Uh, so there's great job and population growth. Got it. I've been arguing that for a while. It doesn't matter. All those things happen at some point in time. People will say enough is enough. Yeah. People can't pay. Increases. People can't pay anymore. Yeah. They get, so. get a 2% increase in, in their wage or whatever they get in, in 7% on rent, you know, for, for years in a row, it has a big impact on them. Absolutely. Absolutely. But how do you, like, for example, in your experience, because you're working on multiple markets, right? Do you, I mean, apart from taxes, which has been seen a, a good uh, rent growth, do you see, I mean, I think even Florida is seeing a good rent growth, right? Like Jacksonville, Tampa, Florida. I, I'm not aware of other, mar- I mean, I'm, I do not know about other markets. How is this Tennessee, Alabama, and, and I think I think even Atlanta. Georgia's good. Yeah. Is, a, is a whole. I mean, some markets, and we bought in a you know place called Gainesville, Georgia, not Florida, but Georgia. Mm-hmm. Property's done phenomenal, but it's you know that's a secondary market for sure. It's about forty five minutes um, mm-hmm. from Atlanta, but it's like you know seven percent rent growth right now. Same with Dalton, Northeast, you know, almost close to Chattanooga rent growth. Some of these sub markets in, uh, so that's you know Florida, like you said, is high. Um, Georgia, parts of Georgia, is definitely high. Alabama and Tennessee, I would say, are mediocre, frankly. They're okay. just going to be average. Nothing. Now, Memphis, in general, the, the rent amounts are lower, but their rent growth there is quite high right now from a percentage standpoint. Got it. But, you know, they're starting with rents half of Dallas, wherever it is, right? So it's proportional. But the percent of rent growth in, in Memphis is actually quite high right now. Is it I think it was, you know, last there? I saw, it was in the top 10 in the country. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. And what about the exit cap rate, right? So usually, I mean, the the, the usual underwriters, you know, people use like one to 0.5% uh, more than what the market is. Do you use the same exit cap rates in the other We take the so? current and we'll add, so let's say the current was a six cap. Mm-hmm. We'll add you know, 0.1 per year to 0.20 per year. Um, and in some cases, like to your point, and so like that's so the end of five years, you would have gone from a six to a seven. Okay. Um, and in some markets, yeah, we'll be, you know, if we're going to be doing a 0.15 in a certain market and we're like, well, maybe this market isn't quite as attractive or in the past, it hasn't performed quite as well. We might do the 0.20. Um, you know, end of the day. I mean, as you know, nobody knows what cap rate's going to do. We can yeah, all guess. No one knows. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, and the important thing to consider is that, you know, cap rate has no impact on your cash flow per se. It's really more of a, tra- a you know a capital event like a refi or a sale, things like that. So, mm-hmm. if you can still cash flow, and you know get your returns, then you know you wait to sell till the time makes it makes more sense to sell. Correct, 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 correct. 
what about uh, loan wise are you guys been doing uh, you know long term agency debt or you've been doing some uh, short term loans as well uh, we do about a third of the deals we do prior bridge but not necessarily short term it's still up to 5 years okay so it's not short term really and the rates are attractive and there's you know a lot of advantages to bridge and some disadvantages but there are a lot of advantages i like them especially in the big value add deals you pretty much have to get them and then we do fanny freddy and then a number of bridge frankly you work with a lot of uh, you know students who are trying to come up in this industry right so can you describe one characteristics of a student who made them really successful uh, you know sponsor on their own his characteristic is i mean you know if you want to say grit right not not giving up but as far as as a whole it's getting really good at something that really you know one skill set you don't have to know every everything about multifamily necessarily to get started you have other people there to help you uh, but getting really good at something that's a value to somebody else and it sounds like okay that's kind of obvious well we've seen it work time and time again where someone all they do is you know we pretty much come in and just find deals that's where their specialty is they don't want to raise money or sign the loan or you know things like that um but i think it's it's being patient you know when you have to wait a year potentially i waited a year to get my first deal that's a long time you know to to wait you know and then you look at it back on it's like that's not a long time to wait when you start buying more and more deals but when you're like trying to to do something new and you're spending uh, you know 12 months before you get a deal that that can be frustrating so it's being patient yeah especially when people already committed i'm going to do this like in right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah some people give something up to do it. Yeah. yeah, we we I mean everybody just remember there's not much deals out there, right? So, you know, right. finding that one deal that makes sense takes time and takes perseverance right. and grace as what you're saying, right? It's not easy. Right. Easy everybody will do it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, coming back to your personal side of it, is there any proud moment in your life that you think I would remember that moment until the yeah. end? At one particular moment in your experience in your real estate venture? That's a great question actually. I would say when I got that third deal and it closed because I had already decided if I closed that deal I was going to stop doing IT. Okay. So when I got that third deal and said, "Hey, I'm my son kept asking me because I kept looking for deals when he's like, "If you get that deal, can you stop doing IT?" Oh, you know, really? he was seeing me work so much, right? And um so when I got that, that was huge for me as a for family. Got it. So that was a transition point of you getting away from IT to real estate, I guess, right? So, right. And and making the decision like you said to do it full time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a hard decision especially, you know, if you're already used to a certain industry, right? And uh, right. that's what has been you know giving you uh, you know paying you bills, right? And now you're paying your bills, which is great. And, and you know, the other thing, unfortunately, when I was doing IT, that was that was kind of my self-worth. that's where i got my value i was you know tell people i wasn't really good at a lot of things but for some reason my mind just worked that way and um so i got my you know my uh self worth out of my job so to give that up you know is is a big thing right and you don't know if you're going to get how successful you're going to be or not in your new adventure um so but uh i mean best decision decision ever made yeah it's Yeah I mean you you brought up a good point sometimes that whole industry what you study for define you what yeah. 20 30 years in your life yeah. and suddenly you are changing your complete identity I mean it's a big thing right I mean a lot of people do not want to do that they if they're known as engineer if they're known as CPA right. IT guy they don't want to know 
what is suddenly this guy is doing real estate, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, even my CPA said, what are you doing? What are he you did. Doing? Now he doesn't say it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. He did. He said, what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you giving up? Why are you stop? Are you making a lot of money doing IT? Why are you not doing it anymore? I mean, you know, he couldn't, okay. couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. And I have to mention this. When I was in IT, when I was an engineer, you know, I always think that people in IT, people in engineering are really smart guys. Uh, so these are the smartest guys you know, because, you know, that's what your circle is, right? Your circle of friends yeah. is there. You think this guy is smart solving problems. And I mean, I did my MBA. I was, it was really eye-opening because I realized there's a lot more smarter guys than me. Who's <laughs> a lot more money in the financial industry. Oh my yeah. God, I was thinking. So that was a big aha moment. Uh, and that's where I realized that, you know, you have to go into business to make a lot more money, right? You do. Uh, and, and there are a lot of other smarter guys and other smarter professions out there that makes a lot more money and, and just more right. advice, I guess, right? So, so I mean, uh, before I forget, uh, what is the most valuable value add that you've seen in all your deals? Uh, what what do you, what would you do in case your budget, uh, rehab budget got cut into half uh, in a deal? Oh, I mean, from a CapEx? CapEx-wise, yes. You know, one, people need to be, if the, if the property looks like junk outside, I've been in properties that look good on the outside and they're not that great on the inside, right? But you need something outside to kind of attract it. And it could just be paint, you know, something so it's not dreary and, you know, dark, dark colors, you know, but using something a little bit more attractive color-wise for paint, a landscaping, simple stuff to do. Um, it's basically, if you think about what, what does a tenant see, you know, when people say I'm going to do, you know, electrical work and, you know, things like that. It's like the tent plumbing, those stuff might be done, but tenants don't see that. So first start with the outside and see what the tenants, you know, whether they go up to the office and it's kind of decked out. Sometimes we'll spend a lot of money around the office to kind of put a lot of landscaping there and make it really nice. Um, exterior wise, interior, the paint again, paint is, is pretty easy to do. Flooring is huge just from a maintenance standpoint. So if you can do it, but it's, as you know, it's not really that cheap mm-hmm. to do floor. And then we'll like resurface countertops. I wouldn't do cabinets and stuff like that if you don't have the budget for it. I wouldn't do appliances unless they need them. You're not going to get the bang for the buck for that. Um, again, people, you know, people will see the paint, they'll see flooring, and they'll see like you know, maybe resurface countertops and paint the cabinets, things like that. But um, some people have really high aspirations. They want to do all these things, but at the end of the day, you're not living in the property, so don't outdo the market unless someone. I don't. I don't be the first guy to prove something in the market. I'd rather have other people prove it first. But I would say for sure, start with the outside and start like with landscaping and paint, stuff like that. People can see that. Awesome, Mark. So we're at the end of the podcast. You want to tell our audience and listeners uh, on how to get hold of you? Yes. Uh, email address is mark, M-A-R-K at thinkmultifamily.com and love to chat with anybody. And I really, really appreciate you uh, spending time with me today, James. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Thanks for coming over. You added a lot of value. You know, I, I really like uh, going across markets here because sometimes it's hard to find someone who have done deals in different markets, right? Because it's important. A lot of people want to do markets everywhere. Right. right. So, I mean, there are deals everywhere, right? So you just have to buy it right and you have to analyze it right and just make sure the numbers work and the location works, right? So that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. For All right, over. James. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank Take you. Care. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. 
Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.